quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The January 6th hearings may be on hiatus, but the committee's work sure is not. The lead starts right now. New video from the January 6th committee featuring Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, as well as Ivanka Trump dishing on her dad's speech the day after the Capitol riots. Also ahead, not your average cell phone towers? Why the FBI believes some could be equipped with Chinese spyware strategically placed across the U.S. Plus, a pastor robbed in the middle of his sermon. A million dollars in jewelry stolen and a live stream captured the crime going down. Welcome to The Lead. I am Casey Hunt, in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and the January 6th committee releasing new evidence in its case against Donald Trump as it narrows its focus for the coming weeks. On the agenda, trying to compel testimony from Ginny Thomas, a conservative activist and wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, over her role in advocating to overturn the 2020 election. Committee Vice Chair Congresswoman Liz Cheney telling CNN they will consider a subpoena if Thomas doesn't cooperate. We certainly hope that she will uh, agree to come in voluntarily, but the committee is fully prepared to contemplate a subpoena uh, if, if she does not. The committee is also pushing to get more documents from the U.S. Secret Service and answers about the agency's potentially missing text messages from on and around January 6th. One of the committee members, Congresswoman Elaine Loria, released previously unseen video testimony this morning, highlighting Trump's reluctance to give a speech condemning the violence on the day after the insurrection. It shows Trump crossed out lines from his prepared remarks on January 7th, including this one, highlighted in yellow, addressed to the rioters. It said, quote, I want to be very clear, you do not represent me. He crossed that out. CNN's Ryan Nobles starts us off from our coverage from Capitol Hill with a closer look at the new testimony released today and the witnesses close to Trump, who could be appearing in front of the committee soon. The January 6th Select Committee is far from done. The committee will be in order. Planning hearings for September and promising their August will be spent expanding an already sprawling investigation. We anticipate talking to additional members of the president's cabinet. Uh, We anticipate talking to additional members of his campaign. All this while continuing to reveal new information they've uncovered. Was the implication that the president was in some ways reluctant to give that speech? Yeah. Okay, what do you base that on? The fact that somebody has to tell me to nudge it along. Representative Elaine Luria sharing a video montage of interviews they've conducted to show how former President Trump cut lines from a speech he delivered the day after the Capitol riot. And as you can see throughout the document, there are lines crossed out. There are some um, there's some words uh, added in. Do you recognize the handwriting? It looks like my father's handwriting. 
Trump cutting out criticism of the rioters, even as some of his top advisors, like White House counsel Pat Cipollone, made clear they thought the president needed to send a clear message. In my view, he needed to express very clearly that the people who committed violent acts went into the Capitol, did what they did, should be prosecuted and should be arrested. The committee is also trying to determine what members of the Secret Service were up to, especially after the Homeland Security Inspector General accused the agency of deleting text messages from January 5th and 6th. We've got new information that we're requesting and receiving as well from the Secret Service, and there's just a lot of questions um, still to be answered on that front. Um, so. I think that's something we're still working through, taking in this new information. Meanwhile, the committee still wrestling with how to handle Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who was in touch with Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and conservative lawyer John Eastman, encouraging them to continue efforts to overturn the election. It's very important for us to speak with her. And uh, and as I said, I hope she will agree to do so voluntarily. But But I'm sure we will contemplate a subpoena if she won't. And just how long could this investigation go? Originally, it was thought that the committee would wrap up their work by Election Day and issue a final report sometime this fall. Now, committee members suggesting that their work could continue perhaps even until the end of the year, pointing out that the resolution states that their work is not done until they issue their final report. And Casey, they can issue that final report whenever they choose. Indeed. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks very much for that. And joining me now to discuss is January 6th committee member, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. Congresswoman Lofgren, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with the new video that was released by the committee today. Jared Kushner said he wasn't sure why Donald Trump crossed out the lines in the speech that condemned rioters. What is your understanding as to why Trump refused to say things directed at the rioters, such as, quote, I want to be very clear, you do not represent me? Well, I mean, you can see what he did. Um, that was uh, recommended that he say that, and uh, he struck it out. One can reach a conclusion or believe that it didn't reflect his view. Maybe uh, they did <laughs> represent him. Um, you know, we have so much evidence for each of these hearings uh, that we the time constraints are such we can't include everything. And that's been true not only for last week's hearing, but all of them. And so we will, in some cases, be uh, releasing uh, additional evidence that just because you can't have a 20-hour hearing uh, that we, we think is pertinent, uh, and that will be from all of the hearings. Okay. So you've said, uh, and, and others on the committee have said, that you're willing to subpoena Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, if necessary. How long are you willing to let negotiations go on with her counsel before you issue such a subpoena? Well, we want to give her every opportunity uh, to come in. When uh, we first invited her, uh, she said publicly that she wanted to come in. She looked forward to it, and we thought she would be coming in. She now has counsel, which she, of course, has a right to do. Um, and, you know, we're talking uh, with her lawyer. Uh, but, you know, there's a limit uh, to how long Weeks, that goes on. Well, I'm not going to say, uh, you know, how, how long, but at some point it doesn't look serious. It looks like a delay tactic, at which point we have to see whether or not uh, to issue a subpoena. And uh, as others have said, and as the vice chair said, uh, that's very much 
a possibility. Do you have any concern at all about setting a precedent by subpoenaing the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice? Does that enter into the calculation? No, because it's not about who she's married to. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what she did with Dr. Eastman. She's an independent actor. Both she and the and the uh, justice have said that, and we take them at their word. Um, this is about what she did, and we are in need to know more about that. So Congresswoman Liz Cheney over the weekend said that there are interviews scheduled with former Trump cabinet officials. I'm wondering, did those officials come forward recently? Were they resisting coming before? Well, we're not going to get into a discussion of the witnesses in advance. That's really contrary to the committee rules, and I try and uh, stay pretty close to those requirements. Uh, But I will say that as more information comes out, uh, it leads to a few more questions. Um, For example, the, the recent information about the Secret Service has raised quite a few questions that we need to get answers to. That, that wasn't apparent earlier. Right. In fact, that's, that's actually what I wanted to, to follow up with you on. Uh, Adam Kinzinger, fellow uh, member of the committee, would not rule out issuing a subpoena for personal phones of the Secret Service members who had these interactions with President Trump on January 6th. Do you believe that somebody acted maliciously when it comes to the po- potentially missing text messages here? Well, I don't know, but here's the facts. I mean, on January 16th, Secret Service received a letter signed by four committee chairmen, this is before the J6 committee existed, telling them to preserve all the evidence. 11 days later, they erased it. So that's problematic. Uh, We uh, we did not receive all of the information we sought until, and we still haven't received it all, until the subpoena was issued, which is of concern. I'll tell you, I have a concern It's very clear now that by the morning of January 6th, uh, the Secret Service and the security people knew that a mob, an armed mob, was forming up to go to the Capitol. And yet they sent the vice president with a very small detail, protective detail, right over to the Capitol. How did that happen? Do you think that was a malicious move on the part of the Secret Service? Is that the suspicion of the I'm not making allegations. I'm not making allegations. I'm asking questions. We need to find the answers to these questions. All right. Democratic Representative Zoe Lofgren, thanks very much for your time today. We really appreciate you being here. Separately, there is also the investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, into Trump's actions. Next, why a judge shut down part of the district attorney's probe in that case today. Also ahead, the Pope's historic visit to Canada right now and his apology for what he calls deplorable evil in Catholic residential schools. We're back with our politics lead and a major development in the Georgia investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. A judge ruling today that the Fulton County District Attorney cannot question a Republican state senator who was one of the fake Trump electors. Let's bring in CNN's Kara Scannell. Kara, why did the judge decide to do this? Well, Casey, in this situation, the issue here was the judge found that there was a conflict of interest that the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, had. The backstory is that this fake elector, he's a Georgia state senator, 
um, Burt Jones. He was also a target of the investigation, but he's also running for lieutenant governor in the state. And here's the rub. So Fonnie Willis, the district attorney, had had a campaign fundraiser and had donated money to his rival, his political opponent, in that race. The judge saying this is an untenable conflict, saying that she cannot question him, that she cannot include him in whatever report the special grand jury produces. But he said that she can continue to ask questions about him, and any of that material can be turned over to an independent prosecutor, a different district attorney, to look into that issue. But otherwise, this investigation will continue. I was just going to say, I mean, what what does this ultimately mean for the broader investigation into Trump going forward? Well, I mean, as of now, that it, it is limited only to Jones. Some of these other, there are 11 fake electors that also tried to get the judge to rule in their favor. He denied that. They are expected to appear before the grand jury this week. And meanwhile, today, the Georgia governor, uh, Brian Kemp, is taping a, a testimony for the special grand jury that will be shown to them at some point in the future. He's not appearing live because he's the governor of the state and the prosecution agreed to give him that kind of accommodation. But he's one of several witnesses that will be appearing, including um, Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. He's been ordered to appear next month. Uh, so we're really getting you know, into the heart of this. And Kemp is particularly interesting because he had direct conversations with Trump. He's one of those officials that Trump reached out to. And Trump had asked him to um, impanel a special sex- session of the state legislature, wanting him to try to overturn Biden's win. They're also asking him to order an audit of the signatures on those absentee ballots. So much there. All right, Karis Cannell, thank you so much for that report. We really appreciate it. Many economists insist the U.S. economy will officially hit a recession this week. But the White House says, not so fast. Attempts to change minds, no matter what reality might be, next. Topping our money lead, it's report card week for the U.S. economy. Biden's White House is rushing to get ahead of major reports that may show that the U.S. is already in a recession. You can probably understand why they're doing that. It's a big election year, and Democrats, of course, want good economic news to campaign on. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, President Biden is trying to rewrite the traditional and widely accepted definition of a recession. On the economy, it's a moment of truth for the Biden White House. I think the state of the economy is uh, demonstrating resilience in the face of very significant global economic challenges. This week, the White House will be watching closely for clues of a recession when new consumer confidence numbers are released Tuesday, followed by an expected interest rate hike by the Federal Reserve on Wednesday and second quarter economic growth rates out on Thursday. With forecasters predicting the second quarter GDP will be negative, The White House arguing it doesn't mean there's a recession. Never in the history of our country have we had a recession where the economy was creating jobs, period, let alone creating 400,000 jobs. So those numbers are inherently backward looking. While two negative quarters in a row is often viewed as a sign of a recession, the president's aides are highlighting job growth and making clear it's not their definition. Certainly in terms of the technical definition, it's not a recession. Even if that number is negative, we are not in a recession now. Many Americans feel differently. A new CNN poll says 64 percent of Americans already believe the economy is in a recession. That number even higher than October 2007, when 46 percent of Americans said the economy was already in a recession. The Great Recession wasn't officially declared one by the National Bureau of Economic Research until December 2008. 
a full 12 months after it actually began. Asked if the White House is attempting to change the common definition of a recession. We've always talked about the strength of our economy. We've always start, talked about how historic it's been, and we've always talked about the transitioning, right? The transitioning to more stable uh, and steady growth. Now, Casey, the president himself was just asked what he thinks the likelihood of a recession is. Here's what he said, and he used the words, three very important words, quote, in my view. We're not going to be in a recession. My hope is we go from this rapid growth to a steady growth. And uh, so see, we'll see some coming down. But I don't think we're going to, uh, God willing, I don't think we're going to see a recession. Now, his aides, when they have talked about that, they have cited strong hiring, the jobless rate as well, in addition to other factors they say they're looking at when it comes to the predictions of a recession. For the president's part, you notice there he was speaking virtually earlier today. That's because, of course, he is still isolating after testing positive for COVID-19. But he told reporters that he is feeling well. He said he finally got two full nights of sleep last night. He said he was woken up by his dog this morning. He does say that he plans to be back at work by the end of the week, Casey. But of course, that does depend on whether or not he is going to get that negative COVID-19 test. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks very much for that report. Let's discuss with our panel. Uh, Chris Eliza, um, inflation affects every American directly. Yep. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to point out the, dif- the definition of a recession is nuanced. But I got to tell you, I, I struggle with this. I get that why they want to do it from a political perspective, yeah. but like you can't fake this. No, I was just I was laughing to myself with the in my view thing that Caitlin highlighted, because it's like, well, in my view, I should be drafted into the NBA. Like the <laughs> in NBA, my view, in, NBA executives I didn't agree with that. Of dollars, right. right. <laughs> like it doesn't really matter what you think. It's there's a there is a technical definition two straight quarters of negative economic growth. They clearly believe that that is likely to come to pass later this week. They're trying to pre-bud it. To your point, we get why they're doing it politically. Right. At the same time, we have these terms for reasons. You don't have to like it. Of course they don't like it because the economy, you know, Joe Biden's Biden's handling of the economy was at 25 or 30 percent in our most recent poll. Like, yeah, it's a problem for them. This adds to the problem. But you don't get to change the nomenclature in the middle of a campaign because it doesn't work for you. Well, and again, your voters are going to feel what they feel in their lives. Exactly. No matter what what you say. All right. So, um, Scott Jennings, I want to come to you on this because obviously Republicans would love to talk about inflation all day long. Right. You'd be walking into the midterm elections on that issue. You'd walk out the winners. But the reality is cultural issues have come into play here uh, because of the decision, the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. And some of the the post-Roe protections around particularly same-sex marriage because of what Clarence Thomas put in that opinion, raising questions about whether that decision would hold. Republican Senator Marco Rubio has been out sparring with Secretary, the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about the same-sex marriage bill. Here is what uh, he tweeted today. We have a Harvard-educated transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, who apparently never learned that there's a difference between the state level and the federal level. The Disney fight was a state fight. I'm going to focus on the real problems. I'm not going to focus on the agenda that dictated by a bunch of affluent elite liberals and a bunch of Marxist misfits who sadly today control the agenda of the modern Democratic Party. So Rubio has called the need for this bill a, quote, fake problem and a stupid waste of time. It's a pretty tough way to put it for a lot of families, frankly, um, who, you know, he's talking about their their families. Why is he doing this? Well, I think when you're in a reelection campaign and you're a Republican right now, uh, there is a school of thought that 
no matter what your policy view is, you want to show your voters that you're fighting. You know, I'm going to fight whatever on the issue du jour is that right. happens to be on the gay marriage issue today. So he's showing the Republicans down there, hey, I'm fighting Pete Buttigieg. And so wherever you come down on it. Now, not every Senate Republican has made that decision. Obviously, Ron Johnson, who's also on the ballot in Wisconsin, has said he's going to vote for it. And I think the conference is going to wind up split on this. I do think Alito and Kavanaugh couldn't have been more clear. And, and Rubio has a point. This is not a real issue. It's not really in danger of changing. Uh, and so I do, I do think he has a point. But I think the political tactics here are, I got to show the people that support me that I'm a fighter. And that's what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, would, do Republicans really want to be fighting on this turf, though, ahead of the midterms? They really want to be voting against a bill that legalizes a very popular issue. I mean, gay marriage is very popular in this country. It also legalizes interracial marriage. Yeah, some do, some don't. Uh, and I think some of it's going to be jurisdiction. Like, if you represent a very rural state, you've got a lot of church-going uh, voters in your state, you might have a different view. I think Steve Daines today came out on, uh, on his position. I think he represents a very rural state, of course. Again, it's going, to be a, it's going to be a split issue. And there's a legitimate political view that you just sort of brought up, which is, you know, let's just vote for it. Go with the popular opinion and get it out of the way so we can get back to talking about the things that we know matter to voters and work in our favor, which has to be economy inflation. Yeah, but I mean, the fact is that um, a majority of Americans support abortion rights, a majority of Americans support marriage equality, a majority of Americans support interracial marriage. Um, And so Republicans who are on the other side of that are really actually not on the side of the majority. And so I think that that's going to prove out come election time. Well, speaking of abortion, Francesca, the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, was in Indiana today. She was talking ahead of there's a special session there to talk about abortion laws. I mean, do you think this is something that's going to animate? I mean, one of the major issues Democrats have had, right, is enthusiasm, especially among their base. Um, It's a pretty, do do you think that this is something that can make a difference in terms of getting their voters to the polls? Well, certainly Democrats are hopeful that we'll drive up turnout because this is going to be a turnout election. It has everything to do with, you know, how many in, in the Democratic Party. And, and to bring it back to inflation, though, with these kitchen table issues that we're talking about, in that same CNN poll that we were discussing before, the president had a 38% approval rating. Uh, when you ask voters what they care most about in the economy, even among Democrats, mm. he was at six and, you know, six and 10 who thought that uh, the economy, uh, that, that he was underwater uh, when it comes to inflation, almost underwater. You know, not just with Americans broadly, but almost with with Democrats also. I, I mean, it seems to me Scott is more versed in this. Disagree, but it seems to me that every day that Republicans are talking about anything other than the economy, inflation, gas prices, the price of you know, you go to the grocery store, it costs more. Every day between now, what are we, a little over three months away. I, I didn't do my calculation before I came on. <laughs> I you and I should both know I, exactly I how many days there are until the midterm election. But, <laughs> but a little over three months, you know, every day that they is not spent talking about Joe Biden's economy, Joe Biden's potential recession, inflation. It seems to me that that's a lost day. Scott Jennings, lost day? You're absolutely true, but it's not Republicans who are putting these things on the floor. It's Democrats, and so they know what you know. And they know what what you just said. If if they're talking about the economy, it's a lost day. But that would be to your point, though, Scott, which you made, which is maybe it is better that rather than all these Republican senators hemming and hawing or, you know, coming out very publicly announcing, you just hold, they, 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 there's a vote, they vote, 
and they move on because it's one of those, sometimes you have to take these, it's not a loss, but, but a strategic loss in order for this broader win to talk about it. Right. Well, we, do, we are going to have potentially a several week period here of trying to, Manu Raju, our own Manu Raju tracking down folks in the halls, getting quotes like the one from, <laughs> right. from Marco Rubio, not great for Republicans. Uh, fair point. I, I, I want to switch gears um, slightly because Congresswoman, um, in your home state of Maryland, we recently, uh, you recently held uh, primary elections and the Trump-backed candidate, uh, Dan Cox, won the party's nomination for governor. Um, Republican, the outgoing Republican governor who's term limited, Larry Hogan, uh, reacted to this yesterday with Jake on State of the Union. Let's watch. Oh, I don't think there's any chance that he can win, but uh, there's no question this was a big win for the Democratic Governors Association that I think spent over $3 million trying to promote this guy. And uh, it was basically collusion between Trump and the and the de- National Democrats who uh, propped this guy up and got him elected. But um, he, he really is not a serious candidate. So in Maryland, it's clear this guy has a much less, he doesn't have a terribly good chance of getting actually elected. But there are places across the country where Democrats have spent money on MAGA candidates. Uh, Pennsylvania comes to mind that, that could very well end up in positions of power in critical election years like 2024. Doug Mastriano uh, in Pennsylvania really comes to mind. I mean, is this, I understand why Democrats are doing it from a political perspective. They think it's more likely a Democrat will get elected, but is it good for the country? Well, you know, the thing is, I mean, Republicans have done this done similarly in in other races. I think this year we're focused more on what Democrats are spending well, in these I mean, races. Well, I mean, I think it's partly because Democrats are otherwise running on a platform that says democracy is paramount and extremely important. And it seems like the stakes are higher than maybe they've been in the past. Well, I think I think Americans are caring about democracy now. And so when you can put that on the table and there's a clear contrast, I think that's what we're looking for in the electorate really is a clear contrast in these candidates, whether it's in the House districts or in these um, in these Senate races where you have that contrast in the public. Republicans, Democrats and independents can look at the candidates and say, you know what? We really don't want to go down that route. Well, we'll see if uh, we'll see if that happens or if it's a kind of be careful what you wish for type scenario. I guess we're about to find out. Uh, Thank you all very much for being here today. We really appreciate it. Cell phone towers in middle America and plans for a fancy garden at one of the highest points in Washington, D.C. Up next, a CNN exclusive. The red flags U.S. officials believe were attempts by China to spy on critical U.S. infrastructure. We are back with our tech lead and a CNN exclusive. The FBI is increasingly alarmed about a Chinese company's ability to intercept sensitive military information here in the United States, including nuclear arsenal communications. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis broke this story. Katie Bo, uh, one former FBI official says that the concern level over the Chinese-made equipment on top of U.S. cell towers is in the BFD category. We'll let our viewers translate what that means. Uh, Lay it out for us. This is an incredible story. Yeah. So this all started with this big FBI counterintelligence investigation that dates back to at least the Obama administration. and was ultimately briefed up to the Trump White House in 2019. The FBI knew that these small rural telecommunications carriers in the Midwest were using Chinese-made Huawei equipment on top of their towers in places like Colorado and Nebraska, where there's a lot of sensitive U.S. military installations, including nuclear missile silos. Now, companies say they were using this equipment because it's cheap, it's reliable, it's effective, right? It made good business sense for them. But the FBI, in the course of their investigation, was able to determine that the equipment had the capability to recognize, intercept, and potentially disrupt restricted Defense Department communications, which, (laughs) as one of our sources described it, 
was a BFD. It offers China this potentially pivotal and really dangerous window into command and control for U.S. for for the U.S. nuclear arsenal, which is obviously a huge deal. Now, we should note, China obviously denies that it's using this equipment in that way. And Huawei, of course, denies that its equipment even could be used uh, to, to do this. So if the government's known about this for years, they've known about this problem, why is the equipment still there? I, the short answer is money. The FCC in 2019, after this investigation was briefed up to the White House, issued a rule uh, that ordered these companies to rip out this equipment and start all over again. The program was called Rip and Replace. Congress appropriates about $2 billion to reimburse these companies to, to get rid of this equipment and start all over again. The problem is that the FCC is now saying that that's about $3 billion too short. So here we are, three years after the FBI has briefed this investigation, three years after the FCC passes its rule, that equipment still there, still in use. Wow, remarkable. So did the investigators find anything else that worried them out in Colorado and Nebraska? They also discovered that the leading regional provider had mounted traffic and weather cameras uh, on its towers that it was live streaming as a public service. Great if you want to see if you're going to run into traffic on your way to work. Not so great uh, if it offers China the ability to track military movements through the region. Wow. Okay. Uh, Katie Bo Lillis, thank you very much Thanks for this so much. reporting. Uh, it's, it's a bit scary. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. All right. The Pope traveled all the way to Canada to make an apology on behalf of the Catholic Church. Why some believe that nothing he says will ever be enough. Turning now to our world lead. Russia says its strike on the key port of Odessa in southern Ukraine did not break the agreement it had reached to restart critical grain exports. Those shipments could stave off a global food shortage. Saturday's attack came less than 24 hours after the Kremlin signed the deal with the U.N. and Turkey. CNN's Nick Robertson is in Ukraine. Nick, what does this attack mean for the grain exports that the world so desperately needs? Yeah, it means that there's a big question mark over Russia's commitment because initially Russia said that they didn't do it and then they said that they did do it and then they said they were striking military targets. And now Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has said they can they have the right to continue to strike Odessa port to go after military targets. And I don't think this was really what was in the UN Secretary General's understanding when he brokered this deal, although technically there is no specific ceasefire agreement in the deal. I've spoken to Ukraine's infrastructure minister today. He was the minister, the Ukrainian minister who was in Istanbul Friday to sign that deal. And he said, look, we're committed. We want to get it done. We hope to be able to get uh, grain moving by the end of the week. That's their hope. Obviously, they've got to get some mines out of the way, some sunken ships out of the way. But another thing is unnerving and worrying the Ukrainian officials at the moment, and that is that the Russians are saying that their ships can escort the cargo vessels. The Ukrainians are saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to happen. So the State Department also uh, has confirmed the deaths of two Americans in Ukraine. What are you learning about that? Yeah, we're learning details about one of them, Luzishan. Um, he was in the Donbass area, which is one of the more heavily shelled and contested front lines in Ukraine at the moment. His mother says that an artillery shell hit the position that he was on, that three other uh, men with him tried to save him, obviously unsuccessful. She said that he had told her that they were short of protective equipment. This is what she said. The last conversation was, oh my goodness, he kept saying, mom, we need equipment. We really need equipment. We need helmets. We need 
tactical vests. We need scopes. Can you send me some? All he talked about was, Mom, I really want to help. And that's what he did. So that's a huge front line uh, where he was killed. A lot of artillery, a lot of big missiles coming in there every day, every night. Those soldiers on the front lines really getting it hard. All right, Nick Robertson in Kyiv. Thank you very much. In our faith lead, a papal trip like no other. Today, Pope Francis apologized to Canada's indigenous communities for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools where children suffered decades of physical, sexual, and mental abuse. Before his remarks, at a powwow in Alberta, the Pope met with indigenous peoples in a cemetery at a former school. CNN's Paula Newton takes a closer look at the sins the Pope is trying to atone for. It has taken the high-tech tools of this century for Canadian soil to give up the torturous secrets of the last. Drones hovering, swooping, mapping, ground-penetrating radar peering into every layer. We see if there's any disturbances in that soil structure. Disturbances. These are soil anomalies that could lead to the unmarked graves of Indigenous children, those who were once students at Fort Alexander Residential School in the Sad King First Nation in the province of Manitoba. When you have 190 anomalies, there's got to be something. Go this way. The Catholic institution is no longer standing, but its survivors want you to know what it stood for. Abuse of all kinds that a government report found amounted to cultural genocide. That's where the, the priests stayed. Rita Gumond was just six when she arrived. The abuse started soon after. I need to have us sit on his lap. And meanwhile, he had his hands under our skirts. Patrick Bruyere was seven. He endured eight years. Then he got me drunk. I didn't know what the hell happened when I got up that next morning. Sarah Mazzaroli was six, forced to stay until she was 14. Bam! Across the face. Every morning, she did that to me. Henry Bubard is 80 now, just seven when the nightmare started. But after what the priest did to me, Sexually, you know, has changed everything. You have to survive if you're going to live. You have to find ways to get over everything that was being done to you. Well, it was all uh, prayer. It was all uh, behave yourself. It was all don't speak your language because if you do, you'll get punished, you know, and a lot of hum humiliation. This just told me to pray, to pray, to pray. But uh, pray, what is prayer? You know, it means nothing to me. If you don't pray, they go to hell. All that. I thought that was all these years I was living in hell in that residential school. This is hell to me. Hundreds of victims like these from one school. And there were dozens of these institutions across Canada, most run by the Catholic Church. More than 150,000 Indigenous children were forced to leave their families and were subjected to forced labor, neglect, and sexual and physical abuse and thousands just went missing. In the past year, several indigenous communities have discovered hundreds of unmarked graves and more searches are underway. The survivors of Fort Alexander were too young to know where children went and why. There remain unmarked crosses in the cemetery made from the old school pipes. Who lays there? 
So here too, during the very week Pope Francis is on Canadian soil to apologize, they scour the land. You know, what's so extraordinary here, Casey, is that, think about it, the Pope actually begged for forgiveness in this powwow, and yet the whole scope of the abuse here, you just heard those survivors speak of it, it just stands in contrast to this one gesture. This is what we call intergenerational trauma. It is not just about isolated cases of abuse, and it continues to stay with Indigenous communities and the people throughout this country literally from coast to coast to coast. It, it is a profound apology, but there is a lot of healing that still needs to be done. Absolutely heartbreaking. Paula Newton in Edmonton, thank you very much. A completely different experience for a pastor in New York. Up next, the robbery during Sunday service, captured on the church's live stream. Come out and meet us in church. Just incredible images in our national lead. This is the Oak Fire near Yosemite National Park in California. It's the state's largest this year. At least 3,000 people have been forced to evacuate their homes. Meanwhile, more than 60 million people across the U.S. are under heat alerts today. Much of the Northeast broke record temperatures over the weekend. Places such as Boston and Newark, New Jersey, reached 100 degrees or more. New York City police are looking for a gunman who allegedly robbed a pastor and his wife and took more than a million dollars in jewelry. The robbery happened during a church service with a portion captured on a live stream. Take a look. I'm not going to do anything, right? Because I know y'all coming for me. Y'all coming straight to me. I don't want my parishioners hurt, right? I got um, women and children there. I want to bring in CNN's Bryn Gingrass. Uh, Bryn, this is absolutely wild. Uh, how did this happen? Yeah, so that was a pastor who was giving a sermon, Casey, yesterday during the service. And here's the video that uh, you definitely want to see, show your viewers. So this is the pastor getting to the ground. He says he actually saw three men come into the congregation and went for his wife first, and then they went for him. And that's what you just heard from him, was him saying how they went for him. They took the jewelry that was on his body. They took his bishop ring. They took even jewelry that was underneath the clothes that he was wearing. And if you listen to how he says that, you know, he he said he believes he was a target. Now, listen, this uh, this pastor, his, his name is Lamar Whitehead. He's well known in New York City, famously recently for uh, he says that he helped facilitate the surrender of the man who is accused of killing a New Yorker on a subway train last month. Well, when he showed up to that perp walk here in New York, he was driving a Rolls Royce and he was wearing head to toe designer clothes. So he says that because of all that attention uh, that he was targeted. So take a listen to that. As I got down, one went to my wife and took all her jewelry and, um, and had the gun in front of my eight-month-old baby's face. Um, took off my bishop's ring, my, um, my wedding band, and took off my bishop's chain. And then I had chains underneath my robe. Um, and um, he started tapping my neck to yeah. see if anything else. 
And again, so you can see he says he believes he was targeted. Police are trying to figure out who those people are. They said that they've been looking through surveillance video in that area. Of course, they have this live stream, Casey. Uh, The good thing here, no injuries to anyone inside that congregation. About 20 to 25 people were in there. Of course, his wife, uh, his children, he himself, they were not hurt. So that is the good news. But certainly uh, this is one that the NYPD is thoroughly investigating. Casey. Very scary. Bryn Gingrass, thanks very much for that report. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Don't go anywhere. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in The Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.